If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is James Walden. I'm one of the elders here at Riverside, and I'm part of the Gills Creek small group. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, because it'll be a lot easier to do this with a Bible open in front of you, a physical Bible. Uh, if you don't have a physical Bible, there should be Bibles nearby. If not, your phone is permissible. Uh, <laughs> Isaiah chapter 1 verses 1 through 2, 4. So it's a large chunk of text. Um, really, the vision of Isaiah encapsulated in this, in this uh, chunk of text. So uh, would you follow along with me as I read Isaiah's tremendous wor opening words to his tremendous book of prophecy? The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. Ah, oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint, from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will become white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. 
If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silvers become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. The widow's cause doesn't come before them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and I avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. They will be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens you have chosen. You shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, like a garden without water, and the strong shall become tender in his work, a spark. Both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war any more. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word that you have revealed to your prophet, that your prophet has recorded through the inspiration of your spirit and by the kind preservation and faithfulness of your spirit has been preserved to us millennia later. And your word still speaks to us now not as a dead letter to dead men and women, but as the living word of God to souls made alive by your word. Enliven us now, Lord Jesus. We ask it by your grace. Amen. The, the big idea of this section is Isaiah's vision, which will then go on repeat with increasing detail as this lengthy book unfolds. Isaiah has tremendous vision from the Lord. As organizations or business leaders, we talk a lot about vision. We talk about vision as a preferred future. In fact, biz Christian business leaders will often quote Proverbs that says, without vision, 
a people perish. But the word vision there is not an organization's statement of mission and vision. It's a revelation from God. It's a revelation that does give us an insight into the future. But God's vision doesn't just give us a preferred future. It offers us a sure and glorious future. It also is x-ray vision into our present condition. As many business leaders say, culture eats vision for lunch. You can have a tremendous vision for your organization or for your own life. But if your culture is dysfunctional, you'll never get there. And so Isaiah doesn't just offer a future vision. He offers a diagnosis of Israel's own interior rot, both culturally, institutionally, and individually, personally, and spiritually. Our our vision begins with this word of calling heaven and earth to listen. Verse 2, hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. This is common way to open a vision among the prophets. Among Isaiah's contemporary prophets who ministered during the same time as him, we hear a similar call. Amos says the Lord roars from Zion and the mountains and surrounding areas melts under the weight of his voice. Micah says, Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth. Give attention. God is summoning his people, Israel, his people, Jacob, his people, Judah. And in doing so, he's making a public indictment for all the world to hear, because as it goes for the people of God, so it will go for the world. As they flourish, the world flourishes. This involves heaven and earth. The God of heaven and earth, his very own people, are indicted. The whole of heaven and earth needs to know this. And what is the charge against them? Verses 2, 2nd part of verse 2 through 4. Children I have reared and brought up, but they don't know me. Children who have acted corruptly. What a scandal. The children of God don't know their father. What a scandal to make public. Here's God, as it were, in family court. My own children have abandoned and forsaken me. Because all of his previous attempts to reconcile with his children have gone unheeded. He's taking it to court before heaven and earth. And in this language, he's very explicitly echoing the prophecy of Moses. Indeed, prophets are kind of like prosecutors prosecuting the covenant that has been broken again and again and again in the court of heaven and earth, calling heaven and earth as witnesses to this broken arrangement. 
In fact, on the screen, you'll see an excerpt from the famous song of Moses that Moses vouchsafed to Israel to remember and to recall, to teach to their children. Look at the similar language Moses calls for heaven and earth, for the cosmos to be a witness to his testimony. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. And he goes on to speak of Israel. They have dealt, using the same language Isaiah uses, corruptly with him. They are no longer his children. They no longer behave as his children. They are crooked and twisted. He goes on in verse 15 to say, Jeshurun, a name for Israel, grew fat, stout, and sleek, and forgot the God who birthed them. And so as a result, God says this, verse 20, I will hide my face from them. We see that language in our text too. Chapter 1, verse 15, when you pray, I will hide my eyes from you. In Isaiah 59, later he'll say, your sins have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. And so God says, I will see what their end will be. They are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. This was Moses, many hundreds of years before Isaiah, predicting the predicament of the people of God. Because sadly, it was inevitable. Because sadly, it was their fallen condition. It is our fallen condition. As it goes with Israel, so it goes with us. They are a microcosm for all of us. Isn't it striking that God does not cover up the sins of his family? He puts it on full display. Not because he's airing dirty laundry, but because it takes this full exposure for us to be healed. So often the church hides its corruption, presumably for the glory of God. God, for his own glory, exposes the corruption of his people, exposes his family's dysfunction. Again, not to bring them shame, but because all the personal interactions have failed. This is the last-ditch effort to bring healing to his people. God does not hide the sins of his people, and neither should we hide our sins. In our life together, the reality is we become, and it's what we long for, known. You know what else becomes known? Our sin. When you live in community, your sin becomes evident. The people in my small group know some of my sin. They know some of the sins that I maybe don't even see myself. And the closer those relationships become, the more it is known. To be known is to be exposed. But being exposed in God's presence and in the presence of faithful witnesses is not bad, it's good. It leads to our healing, to our restoration. God doesn't shame us, but rather he offers us forgiveness. He offers to remove our shame. He offers to restore us. And among the saints, I pray this is true at Riverside. Love covers a multitude of sins. 
If not, if we are unknown and unexposed, we are just walking wounded. We're dead men walking. And that's what exactly what God goes on to say. He pleads with them in verses 5 and 6. Why will you be struck down? Why will you keep following this path of destruction? He calls them to an imagination. Imagine your life differently. You don't have to keep living this way. You don't have to stay stuck in your addiction. You don't have to stay stuck in your secret sins. You don't have to stay stuck in your despair. You can, ima- can you imagine another way? Can you imagine liberation? That's what he's calling them to. You don't have to stay here. And then he diagnoses us with his x-ray vision. The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. You know, the doctrine of total depravity as it's called, is often misunderstood as you're as evil as you can be. We're not. We can be worse. (laughs) It doesn't mean we're as evil as we can be or still less that there's no good in us at all. The image of God persists in us by common grace, by God's sustaining grace. There is much good both in the church and outside the church, but sin has pervasively poisoned the well, and it affects every part of us. It's a total or pervasive depravity that affects head to foot. The whole of our being has been tinged and darkened by sin. And we're walking wounded with no healing. Our wounds, our bandages, you can imagine the picture, just like a mummy with red blotches all over, just bleeding, oozing wounds, and we're not getting healed. We're not getting better. We're just keeping on, keeping on. And God says, stop and let me heal you. It was a wake-up call, verses 7 through 9. Your country's desolate. Some think this is the historical situation that Isaiah is describing here is when the Assyrian emperor Sennacherib marches against Jerusalem and marched right up to the gates of the city but destroyed all the surrounding areas. He said, look, you're, t- you're left desolate, a besieged city, a shack in a field. The reality of God's judgments against his people already are being outlined. Do you see the symptoms of your disease? Do you see its negative consequences? Do you feel its effects? The dangers their disease has already produced, but they're blind to, they're deaf to, they're just keeping on, keeping on. God sometimes uses the pain in our life as a wake-up call. You know, C.S. Lewis famously said, he whispers to us in our pleasure. But pain is often his megaphone to our deafness. And so he's calling attention to their pain. That's not to say all the pain in your life is due to your sin. That's certainly not true. The Bible teaches the opposite of this. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. But pain is always useful in calling us back to the Lord and humbling us. God's calling Israel, are you paying attention to your brokenness, to your woundedness? Speaking of these notorious centers of evil, Sodom and Gomorrah, that he mentions in verse 9, 
He then addresses them on a separate issue. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teachings of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And then he just lays into them about their worship. Worship, by the way, prescribed in the law of Moses. he's He's describing all the things they're commanded to do. But he says, why are you doing this? (laughs) The inexhaustible God says to Israel, your worship exhausts me. I'm tired of it. I am weary of bearing your sacrifices. Why would he say this? God, you commanded us worship. Can you imagine God saying that to us as we gathered and we're singing? And he's like, guys, your singing is exhausting. I mean, I think what Andrew said is right. When the saints worship him in spirit and truth, it is a delight to his heart. Even when you're like me and you can't sing worth a dang, God still delights in our singing. But, well, let me ask you this. Are you superstitious? Maybe a little. A little stitious. When we worship God with unsurrendered hearts, when we worship God, he calls them vain offerings. When we offer God, when we offer God our praises and our prayers, and we are unrepentant, we are not willing to bow our hearts to him, you are engaging in superstition. I can manipulate God. I can please him with this outward offering. Or maybe we're doing it for the sake of others for the approval and acceptance of those around us. Either way, you and I can turn the worship of God into idolatry. And it doesn't please God when we come before him only to go through the motions. When we're trying to manipulate or appease him somehow, this does not please him. I'll give you an example of what true worship might look like. God, thank you. This sounds familiar for those of you that have heard the message on prayer. God, wow. God, help me. I believe. Help my unbelief. That's worshipful. God, I'm struggling this morning. I'm struggling singing these songs. But I'm going to offer these words in faith. That pleases him. I find the best way to worship is to humble, to to worship God is to humble and thrill my heart by focusing on his glory, his majesty, his goodness, his sovereignty, and the splendor of the Almighty. To imagine what Isaiah saw in the temple that day, to imagine the scene that John saw in heaven in his vision, the glory and majesty of so great a God. And the litmus test for true worship, what proves our hearts truly are aligning with God's heart is how we respond to the most vulnerable. Look what he says in verse 23. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. The widow's cause does not come to them. Their hands are filled with blood. Not the blood of sacrifices, mind you. The blood of the innocent. The blood of the vulnerable. Jesus exposes our sin as well in this. He says, I know your works. 
This is what he says to the church of Laodicea. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. I don't enjoy cold worship. I don't enjoy outward forms only. For you say, I am rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you, buy from me gold refined by fire. That's another way of saying faith. Faith proven by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so you may clothe yourself and cover your shame. That is, as John interprets it late in Revelation, the good deeds of the saints, righteous deeds. And that you may buy from me salve to put on your eyes that you may see, because you don't see yourself accurately. You don't know yourself, and you don't know me. You don't see me. Your eyes aren't on me. The natural course of our disease will lead to utter destruction if we do not hear the words of Jesus. As he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I'm right here. Let me in. But there is a surprisingly promising prognosis here. In light of all this sort of brokenness and all the woundedness and how thoroughgoing is the disease, he offers this tremendous vision. Verse 25, I will turn my hand against you. To condemn? No. To smelt away your dross. To remove your alloy. To restore your judges. And then you will be called the city of righteousness. I will make you into a city of faithfulness. God will, will make children who don't know Him to know Him as Father. And we see that later in Isaiah when he says, I will pour out my spirit onto a dry and thirsty ground and children will spring up like flowers. Where there were no children, there will be children of God all around. I will make the people who will know me. And our, our bloodied wounds, our blood-filled hands, that blood will be washed as white as snow, though your sins are like crimson. Verse 18 they will like scarlet. You will be like wool. How? How will we be washed clean? Well, again, anticipating where Isaiah is going to go, Isaiah 53, this mysterious servant of the Lord was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. He's wounded. He was bloodied for us so that we could take these bandages off and be washed clean. The great Scottish pastor, McShane, said, for every time you look at yourself, your own wounds, your own brokenness, look ten times at Christ. Look at his wounds. More than sufficient to heal. More than sufficient to atone. In other words, don't just look at yourself. Spend more of your time looking at him, his glory, his majesty, his supremacy, his beauty. Let your hearts be humbled and thrilled by beholding Christ. 
Not only that, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 offers us this incredible vision of a global peace, shalom, throughout the world as people beautifully restored. This was a favorite among the prophets. One of, another one of Isaiah's contemporaries, Hosea, says this. It's on the screen. And in that day, declares the Lord, you who abandon me for other lovers, you will call me my husband. I love this. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. That language is straight from Genesis 1. I am going to renew creation for her. I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth is what Isaiah calls it. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. I will make you lay down and lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. No longer will I be alien or strange to you. You will know me. This wasn't just Israel's restoration, shalom for Israel, but for all the nations. This is a picture here in Hosea, or in Isaiah rather, of a kind of united nations that people, that all the world comes to in Jerusalem. And they will lay down their weapons and turn them into the tools for gardening. In other words, we're going back to paradise. Soldiers will put down their weapons and pick up the instruments of flourishing. Put down the instruments and tools of death and pick up tools for life. That is for all the nations. God is going to restore Jerusalem into this beautiful city so that all the nations will share in her restoration. That vision seems too good to be true, doesn't it? But it has very practical prescriptions for us now. It is the word of Hosea. It was verbatim the word of Micah. If we had time, I'd go and read Micah's version. It's a little bit longer. Micah basically repeats verbatim Isaiah 2, 1 through 4, and adds to it. This was a vision the prophets clung to. They, they absolutely were leaning on this. They were, they were clinging to this. They were, they, were, they were preaching this for Israel and Judah to believe. Guys, this is your future. This is a sure and glorious future. Will you believe? Will you hope? That's how vision should work. It should lead us to a very practical prescription. It should lead us to a practice. This vision isn't just for some distant future that we put away and say, all right, well, that's nice. That's pie in the sky one day. But right now, i got to deal with real life. What Isaiah is saying is this is the realest thing in your world. Now live according to it. Vision isn't a strategy exactly, but neither is it a plan. Simon Sinook, another leadership guru, said when Martin Luther King gave his speech, he didn't say, I have a plan. He said, I have a dream. Isaiah is giving us God's dream, and it is more than a dream. Simon Sinek calls, calls it a just cause. 
That's what an organization should have. Not a vision statement, a just cause. It's a dream we can choose to live into. It's a just cause we can live for and sacrifice for. When God in his vision for us exposes our true condition, how should we respond? Do we hear his warnings? Do we receive it and humble ourselves? When God in his vision warns us away from an unpreferred future, such as he does in our texts, how should we respond? If you are willing and obedient, but if you refuse. Zion will be redeemed, but rebels and sinners will be consumed. How should we respond to this unpreferred future of the natural course of our disease, which is certainly fatal? When God in his vision for us offers us a sure and glorious future, how should we respond? Do we believe him? Do we trust that this is more than a pipe dream? This is destiny. It's where we're going. Are you on board? And do you live accordingly? Look again at verse 16. Here's what, here's what we are to practice in light of this glorious vision, God's dream. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fathers, plead the widow's cause. That's what we should do because that's where we're going. Now, there are two major errors we moderns have had in light of the biblical, the massive biblical hope that has infiltrated the whole Western consciousness. One is utopianism, which is the idea that we can get to this new heavens and new earth, we can get to paradise through our own political machinations, through our own strategies. We're going to figure this out. We're going we're to produce enough technology and enough political technique to accomplish this. Right, a good example of this would be Marxism. Right? We're going to obtain this ideal egalitarianism by our own strategies. This is one that evangelical cultures are generally don't always fall for. Sometimes we do. But we're going to address this next week because Isaiah addresses this specifically. This running to the nations or to our own government to save us. He's going to address that. But there's another error. There's another side of the ditch we fall into. And if you're a conservative evangelical, I identify myself as a conservative evangelical, you're going to tend to fall into this ditch. And that is the ditch of despair. What do I mean by that? Well, to give you one example of a, of a man that I greatly admire in the 20th century, Billy Graham, after he initially supported Martin Luther King's desegregationist efforts and his own crusades, he began to distance himself from the civil rights movement, and he refused to participate in the March on Washington in August of 1963. In King's I Have a Dream speech, he professed so eloquently this article of faith. Quote, down in Alabama, little black boys and little black girls will join hands with little white boys and white girls. But Billy Graham demurred and said, and I quote, only when Christ comes again will the little white children of Alabama walk hand in hand with the little black children. Billy Graham lost heart here. He despaired. Now, 
I would grant that Graham rightly saw that there would not be a total abolition and, and, and removal of racism in our, in our world until Christ comes back. Right now, you and I still live in a world where slavery happens on a mass scale, even though it's illegal in every first world country. Right? But we, we won't be rid of slavery entirely until Christ returns. But thank God for the abolitionists. Right? Thank God they didn't despair. Can you imagine a Christian doctor saying, I could heal you of this particular disease, but you're going to die anyway. The only thing that's going to heal you is the resurrection to come. So, <laughs> right? No, as a doctor, you heal because of the resurrection to come. We don't say, well, we don't polish brass on a sinking ship. The ship's coming back up again. And whatever good deeds we did on that ship to bring it health and life and restoration will be honored forever. Whatever you do now, seeking good and justice, will endure into the new heavens and the new earth because you're acting in line with God's dream. You are in line with reality when we do what's right and just. You're not polishing brass on a sinking ship, or if you are, that polish will shine all the brighter in the new heavens and new earth. In fact, Paul says this about the, after speaking of the resurrection of the dead that we confessed earlier. He says, in light of this, my brothers and sisters, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your work in the Lord is never, what? In vain. It is not in vain because the resurrection is true. I just want to speak briefly to two last things before I want to set our hearts in worship on this great king. There's a tendency for us to run away from the brokenness of this world as Christians. You know, the present landscape of Colombia is very much shaped by the phenomenon of white flight in the 70s after segregation, desegregation. Of the, Certain schools popped into existence. Schools that I'm grateful are here. Neighborhoods were rearranged. The city's whole demographic shifted. And we still live with the marks of that shift today. There is likewise, I think, a Christian flight that happens. We run away from hard places. What would it look like? And some of, many of you are doing this, so this is a word of encouragement. And I know I'm stepping into dangerous territory here. There's nothing wrong, please hear me on this, there's nothing wrong because there are so many variables involved in this decision, there is not a one-size-fits-all answer. There is nothing wrong of sending our children to private Christian schools or to homeschool. But could we imagine what impact a neighborhood of Christians could have on a neighborhood school if they all invested in it? Or a bulk of them invested in the teachers and the faculty and the students? What good could be brought to a school that we would say is a sinking ship and we need to get off like rats? I don't know. What areas do we need to run to the fight and not run away from the fight? Because your deeds are not in vain. Speaking of running to, the disciples were very concerned about this new heavens and new earth vision. They had it too. And they asked Jesus, are you now going to bring it? Is it going to happen now? And what was Jesus' answer in the book of Acts? He says, it's not for you to know when, but now, go. Go to the ends of the earth. 
It'll be preached in Jerusalem, and just like Isaiah said, from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, this word will go, and you will make disciples of the nations. It's a familiar text, but I'm going to read it to you anyway. Isaiah 28, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. My friends, when we go and we preach the good news of Jesus Christ to a world in need of hope, in need of life, your labor is not in vain. Though many will reject you, some won't. And you will have an everlasting fruit to celebrate. You are already bringing the nations to the peace of Jerusalem. Let's continue to do that. Would you pray with me as we prepare our hearts to continue to sing? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your kindness to us. We are grateful for your vision. Lord, help us to live in the light of this vision. Help us to be obedient to this vision. Help us to labor long and hard knowing that as we labor in a world that often frustrates what is good and just and right, that often wants to silent your gospel, that their work is what will be in vain. And the good work of God done in us, among us, through us can only stand. Lord, we turn to you now as the only sovereign and king and we offer you your due praise.